Thank you for tuning in to The Rate Stuff. I'm your host, Lisa Rate, and in this podcast, I'm going to share insights on current hot topics in the areas of public policy, politics, and business with some guests along the way. And welcome back to The Rate Stuff. Today, we're going to be talking about carbon capture and storage. Now, we've been talking about this in Canada a long time. In fact, it was in 2009 that I actually was a signatory of a document that allowed us to go ahead and do a project in carbon capture and storage project that's out in Alberta. But it seems like not a lot has been happening in the course of the last 15 or so years. However, there is now. There's lots of discussion about it. And for Canadian emissions reductions, carbon capture and storage is going to be a massive piece of us being able to meet our obligations in the Paris Accord. But it's always interesting to see what's going on around the world. So today, I'm so delighted that we have with us Ruth Herbert, the CEO of the Carbon Capture and Storage Association, which is the trade body for the carbon capture utilization and storage industry in the UK. I'm reminded by Ruth that we may have crossed paths as far back as 2009 Ruth, welcome to The Rate Stuff, and thank you so very much for joining us here today. Hi, Lisa. It's really great to come across you again and to be talking about carbon capture and storage. Before we decided to push record on this podcast, we were chatting about how we have both been involved in the area for a long time. Now, Ruth, you're a CEO of the association right now, but you have a very long and varied career in the public service in the UK. But it was the carbon capture and storage general meeting that we would have been in the same rooms as in 2009. That's right. So in 2009, I was organizing the Carbon Sequestration Leadership Forum ministerial meeting in London. Ed Miliband was chairing that meeting. He was the Secretary of State for the Department of Energy and Climate Change and I was the lead official supporting him. And it was a really exciting time. We had 15 Secretaries of State, uh, Energy Secretaries from around the world. We had Stephen Chew from the US. We had BRIC countries there, Brazil, India, China, Mexico. We had a really great set of people getting around the table talking about how to get this technology going. And we also had heavy industries there like Rio Tinto and others that saw CCUS as vital to their continuation in a, a lower emissions future. There was an awful lot of momentum around that time. You're right. And a lot of countries were signing up pledges and the UK had its own competition to select carbon capture on a coal-fired power station, carbon capture and storage. And that was at quite an advanced stage at the time. As we mentioned at the top, it seemed to dissipate or go away for a while. It wasn't as front burner. And as a result, you ended up going into, I think, really interesting areas of renewables. Maybe you can give our listeners a little bit of an overview of your path back to carbon capture. It was a really a sad day when the UK government cancelled the competition. It was a kind of phase where there were cost cutting going on, austerity and so forth in public finances. I went to work in the bill team on Green Deal bill. And while I was there and that was finishing, there was talk of a second session bill to do electricity market reform. So I led the bid for that and then joined the team under Jonathan Brearley, who is now the CEO of Ofgem, the, the energy regulator in the UK. But he then set out to deliver a series of mechanisms to reform the electricity market in the UK, make investment in renewable energy happen. And really, that was key to sort of launching the offshore wind industry 
in the UK. And the Contracts for Different Scheme, or CFDs, very well-known mechanism now, but was very, very novel approach. And yeah, I was involved in kind of the design, the legislation, the implementation of those, including setting up the Low Carbon Contracts Company, which would manage those schemes. So I would say really I took sort of 10 years of my career to kind of get offshore wind going. It was fantastic to be able to look back and say, well, look, renewables have gone from sort of less than 5% of the electricity system to sort of 45% over that time. And also to see that the cost of offshore wind had come down from kind of over £150 per megawatt hour to sort of sub £50 per megawatt hour and and ever decreasing. But in all of that time, of course, there was a second competition for CCS, which was then also subsequently cancelled in 2015. And the CCS industry was really in rather a bad place. I think what's held the technology up is just that sort of economic policy kind of impasse really nothing technological nothing from an engineering perspective all these technologies were ready to go people had written hundreds of pages of contracts that they were ready to sign but again sort of economic policy said no and maybe the climate policy wasn't urgent enough I think the difference now and why I've kind of come back to CCUS is the fact that now that countries are signing legally binding net zero targets and in many cases interim targets which I think is what's going to drive action because everyone can put things off when it's 2050 but the UK government came up with its 78% by 2035 target and then suddenly that's really driving action because when you look at that and then you work back to 2030 you've got some really challenging stuff to do and it's not just about electricity which people keep misunderstanding that's actually kind of the easiest bit unfortunately it's the hard to debate sectors that we've really got to tackle now yeah, it's interesting because the life cycle of carbon capture really follows the principle where if it's easier to do, that's the path that we're going to go in, especially when it comes to politics. So increasing uh, generation in the UK through the use of offshore wind, obviously fraught with difficulties for sure, but a lot more easy, I would submit, than talking about decarbonization through carbon capture and storage. You mentioned something in there, Ruth, I, I encounter a lot. It's almost a bit of a disbelief that the technology is there or that the technology works. And that's really not the case, is it? No, indeed. I hear it a lot that it's an unproven technology. And yet the reality is actually it's the technology we have today. It's the technology we have and we know very well and we've known very well for decades. So if we can't deploy a technology we've known for decades urgently, whilst we continue to explore other new technologies as well, then what hope do we have? The common misconception is just because we in the UK cannot point to a large operational full-scale plant and say, look, here's one that's working. But as you know, Lisa, there are many large-scale full-chain plants operating or have operated for a period of time, part of various programs around the world. So we have those examples. We also know that we have huge experience in each separate element of the chain, and we have that in the UK. And in most countries that have got subsurface capabilities of whatever type, they will have lots and lots of experience of geological storage. So that's one thing that's very well understood. And as you know, the Sleipner project in Norway has been storing CO2, a million tons of CO2 a year, but that's CO2 since 1996, I think, and monitoring that and publishing those results online and hosting lots of scientists and 
industry people there to understand it for decades. So storage is well known. CO2 transport is very well understood as well. Lots of countries, especially North America, have decades of experience in onshore transport of carbon dioxide in pipelines. There's also lots of experience of carbon dioxide in shipped as a commodity and in other industries. And then there's the capture, which again, is well understood part of the chemicals industry. And so those same techniques that we've been using in the chemicals industry and in manufacturing, we're going to be using to separate off and the carbon dioxide from flue gases. So these technologies are all existing technologies. The difference is combining them and using them for the good of the planet. And it sort of saddens me a bit that all these technologies are being used just in day-to-day life to produce all the things we wear and all the fuels we use and everything else. And we're quite happy with that. But as soon as someone tries to put them all together and use them for the good of the planet, we say, oh, no, it's not to be trusted. So this is quite a frustration of mine. So you've touched a nerve there, but thanks for asking the question. It's very true because you're kind of gobsmacked when you hear somebody say that with a straight face and an earnestness that they're worried. Now, look, there is some technology out there that is yet to be developed that's going to be important to energy transition writ large, but carbon capture and storage is not one of them. No, and it's here now. And so we really don't have any time to waste. We're already far back behind where we need to be on climate change mitigation. For sure. In Canada, the predominant use for carbon capture and storage is going to be through abatement of emissions from our oil sands operations. That'll be used for natural gas abatement for generation of power. It'll be used in aluminum production. Where do you think UK and Europe is going to be utilizing carbon capture and storage? I think in Europe, the main focus is industrial decarbonisation in terms of the focus of policymakers. I think that's really key. But actually, many countries will be using CCS for a range of applications. As you know, we've talked a little bit about the power sector in the UK. As we have got growing large volume of offshore wind, we know and our own climate change committee has said that we need to have a certain amount of flexible low carbon generation on the system to be able to balance that electricity system with the variable renewables and CCS on gas-fired power stations is one way of doing that and actually the the mechanism that UK government is moving forward with is a dispatchable power agreement so that will actually micromanage how those plants dispatch so when the wind isn't blowing if you like they dispatch when the system needs them to and then ahead of unabated gas they're very expensive but a kit with a very niche role they'll operate for very short periods of time but when prices are so very very high and this is what we need for if we want want to get to a 70% renewable system, then we need almost 20 gigawatts of this stuff. That's one thing they can do. But I think the focus has been a lot on industrial decarbonisation as well, because clearly there's also a debate, I think, going on in Europe, but definitely in the UK as well, around supply chain security. We want to be leaders in climate change and climate mitigation, but We can't do that at the expense of our domestic supply chain security. And so in decarbonising and with all the policies we might have, whether those are carbon taxes, mandates, whatever we have, we can't let that result in offshoring of critical industries. Mm -hmm. You can't really have a conversation about energy transition without at least mentioning the United States Inflation Reduction Act and what it has done in terms of investment in clean tech, renewables, nuclear, everything. Has the UK responded in a policy way to the IRA or are they approaching this differently? What the IRA has done is 
provided a very clear example of how a bold, focused policy can shift investment and can draw an investment. And that's clearly what it's doing. You can see that for what I call low-hanging fruit, the projects that are slightly cheaper. So it may not be your dispatchable power plant with CCS, but if it's cleaning up production of fuels, ethanol, things like that, that you can get those projects away under the tax credit at the level it's at in the US. And that's a combination of factors, obviously, where CO2 is already separated as part of a process, then, you know, you've got very low cost of capture. If you can site that over a onshore storage site, depleted oil or gas, oil field onshore, and reuse existing CO2 pipeline infrastructure, then you've got a viable project. And replicate that lots and lots of small projects like that across states that have that infrastructure and you can get scale very quickly. It's a very interesting policy that has really shown what boldness can achieve. I still think that there are other policy measures that are being put in place and some have been announced to, to actually drive that kind of coordinated cluster infrastructure with different types of strategic capture plants, whether that's industrial or power or hydrogen, some of those uh, things have got additional incentives for those, right? There's the hydrogen, I think there's the $12 billion for hydrogen hubs and so forth. On its own, the tax credit will only drive a certain level of project. I think it's certainly turned a lot of heads. And I think what it does is it creates that critical mass of there's loads of people there doing CCS. And so people go there and want to work on real projects because they're so tired of waiting, as we all are. And that drives the you know, skills and the talent, the supply chain there. So I think it's been a very clever policy, actually. Is the UK responding? I would say, I mean, I'm sure that pressure from IRO had perhaps had quite a bit to do with the announcement of the 20 billion for carbon capture storage in the UK, which was back in the spring budget this year. I'm sure that helped. And I think they've just announced a further two clusters, which was done at the start of summer. So we now have four clusters moving forward in the UK. So yes, I think there's been some level of response. Is it enough? I think you'll find that a lot of project developers, especially our our members that are developing projects all around the UK, are sort of looking at the cluster program. And it's great to see the momentum. We're really grateful to get the focus from ministers, given where we are in the political cycle and all of the changes that have been at the top. But it's very, very difficult for a lot of project developers to know when that opportunity to take their project forward to a final investment decision is going to come. When will they get access to the CFD? They think the CFD is great, but if you can't get one, then it's not the same, is it? So you could say, well, tax credit is not as good as a CFD, but at least it's there and I can just I've, I can apply on an eligibility basis. Whereas for a CFD, there's a lot of process to get one. It's competitive, seems to take a long time. So this is where I think the UK could probably still learn a lot from the US, which is we've got a great mechanism. Now we just need to make it available. And if we really unleash that, then we can actually drive skills, talent, supply chain in the UK. And the EU, I think they've really made a bold attempt to respond to IRA with the Net Zero Industry Act. But again, I think what's missing is sort of where are those incentives and how quickly will they be unveiled? So lots and lots of enabling legislation, which I think is quite powerful, especially the state aid relaxations, because now you've seen billions announced in several countries for industrial decarb. Germany announced 50 billion 
euros for industrial decarbonisation earlier in the year. You've seen other countries announce pots of money for this as well. If you add all that together, it does start to look like a lot of money in Europe, a lot of which can go to CCUS. It's the process by which you access that. And is it as instant and as bold as, as the tax credit? But they're different systems and it's quite difficult to do tax credits at an EU level. It's just not possible. And in the UK, we have a very different tax system. Every jurisdiction is going to be different. The key to securing investment is long term planning. It's clear direction of travel and trajectory of volume of deployment across the different sectors. Regular opportunities to access those support mechanisms and the funds there and clarity over the sort of continuity, regularity of the funds. It doesn't really matter what the mechanism is as long as it's predictable, foreseeable, reliable and available. We're using the acronym CFD, which you and I both know are contract for differences, but some folks who are listening in may not actually know that terminology. Just as we conclude, uh, because Canada is looking at contracts for difference for our CCS with respect to power generation and the, the Pathways Initiative, can you give us a brief description of what a CFD is, an understanding of how they work in practical measures as you had dealt with them in offshore wind? They can be configured in different ways, but the basic concept is that the CFD tops up, say, the carbon price if there is one. And that takes the cost of carbon up to the level that would make the project viable. Put it a different way, the CFD pays the developer the difference between operating with CCS and operating without CCS. And as part of that, it needs to cover the cost of the upfront capital as well as the ongoing operating costs, which is higher with CCS due to energy usage. And the reason why it's so important, because in many of these sectors, they're internationally exposed. If you're making aluminium or steel or glass or cement, you are in a market, you are exposed to international competition. You can't set your price to include the cost of making those products low carbon. And so the CFD covers those costs and allows you to continue operating, but low carbon. Just a way for a country to deal with that notion as well is for carbon border adjustments to take into consideration the other areas and kind of level the playing field. Absolutely. This is a really interesting area because I think CFDs are required in the first instance for most applications of CCS. But there are some applications, as we said before, that might be driven by a carbon tax credit or a carbon price. Down the line, obviously, when we have lots of low carbon products and we have product differentiation, it should be possible to say, well, here's a different product standard and that's a premium product. And so over time, you would expect actually the end users of those products to be paying a premium for some of that to offset subsidy. But in the first instance, of course, the CFD payment will need to cover it. But over time, carbon price might rise. There might be more income from these products uh, that are higher quality products, essentially. And so you would see that subsidy reduce. So the dynamism of the mechanism and the ability to evolve into a commercial market, I think, is important. And then I think carbon border adjustment mechanisms can underline that because if you're trading with a, a nation that doesn't have carbon price, number one, you're already at a disadvantage. But ultimately, down the line, maybe it's going to be also standards and things around low carbon products that enable us to scale up low carbon industries whilst avoiding carbon leakage and offshoring. 
EU has obviously introduced uh, one. The UK has been looking at that too. It's an interesting area and you're batting up against kind of trade and all of those other policies. Do you have a timeline in your mind as to when you think you'll see the UK government move forward? The aim is to have the first CFD signed next year. We really hope that that will be in Q1. There's not a lot of time between now and 2030. The industry is raring to go. And the aim was to have the first two clusters operational in the mid-decade. We're now thinking that that's going to be 2027. The other two clusters will need to follow on very quickly. So I do feel for the civil servants working there now (laughs) because they have to parallel process all of these things at once and effectively everything is backloaded everything's going to happen together because 2030 is less than seven years away they have a tough job and public resources are always under pressure so it's our role I think to point out why this is so important and obviously the international pressure that comes with things like COP28 that's coming up where hopefully lots and lots of countries will be showcasing their plans should help to expedite the putting of resources into this area. I've been speaking with Ruth Herbert, who is the CEO of the Carbon Capture and Storage Association, the trade body for the carbon capture utilization and storage industry in the United Kingdom. Thank you so much for your time, Ruth, and for explaining these for us. Canada is on somewhat of a similar track. I have a feeling that uh, the UK just may be a little bit ahead of us, and we look forward to watching to see what happens. Thanks, Lisa. It's been great talking to you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Now, if you have any questions or comments or even requests on topics to discuss, drop me a line at lisa.rate at cibc.com. Your interactions actually will make this better. I'm your host, Lisa Rate, and this has been The Rate Stuff. The materials disclosed on this podcast are for informational purposes only and subject to our code of conduct as well as IROC rules. The information and data contained herein has been obtained or derived from sources believed to be reliable without independent verification by CIBC Capital Markets and to the extent that such information and data is based on sources outside CIBC Capital Markets, we do not represent or warrant that any such information or data is accurate, adequate, or complete. Notwithstanding anything to the contrary herein, CIBC World Markets Inc. and or any affiliate thereof shall not assume any responsibility or liability of any nature in connection with any of the contents of this communication. This communication is tailored for a particular audience and accordingly this message is intended for such specific audience only. Any dissemination, redistribution, or other use of this message or the market commentary contained herein by any recipient is unauthorized. This communication should not be construed as a research report. The services, securities, and investments discussed in this report may not be available to nor suitable for all investors. Nothing in this communication constitutes a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any specific investments discussed herein. Speakers on this podcast do not have any actual implied or apparent authority to act on behalf of any issuer mentioned in this podcast. The commentary and opinions expressed herein are solely those of the individual speakers, except where the author expressly states them to be the opinions of CIBC World Markets Inc. The speakers may provide short-term trading views or ideas on issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments, but investors should not expect continuing analysis, views, or discussion relating to those instruments discussed herein. Any information provided herein is not intended to represent an adequate basis for investors to make an informed investment decision and is subject to change without notice. CIBC Capital Markets is a trademark brand name under which Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, CIBC, its subsidiaries and affiliates provide products and services to our customers customers around the world. For more information about these legal entities, as well as the products and services offered by CIBC Capital Markets, please visit www.cibccm.com.